I'm going to read two passages. The first one's from Isaiah 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former things he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun in the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppression, you have broken as in the day of Midian. For every boot of, of the trampoline warrior in the battle of tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Well, in my, in my mind... It is still April. And I look at the calendar and it's already Advent, so that's neat. Um, this year, I don't know about you guys, this year just kind of vaporized. Like, just was gone. I just didn't, didn't even realize it was already November, and here we are. Now we're in Advent. Um, and, and even though it feels like it was fast and we got here really quick, I'm really looking forward to, to Advent this year. I, Honestly, I look forward to it every year. Um, even though we know that our, our Savior probably wasn't really born in December, um, it is wonderful to take a time to pause, to slow down, to celebrate Advent and to do it collectively and to do it together as a church family and then uh, in our own in our own homes, it's it's such a cool, such a cool thing. Um, and setting aside this time for the first Advent for the incarnation of Jesus just makes this time of year just really special. And I know that I'm just sort of stating things that are obvious, but um, as we go into this series, uh, I just am really excited to be able to slow down with all of you and to really celebrate Advent this year. Um, and it's worth celebrating, obviously. And there, there are people who are you know, kind of questioning whether we should really celebrate Christmas. Did the early church celebrate Christmas? I was just reading some articles on some of those things. You know, Did they celebrate it since then till now? And maybe they didn't. And there were definitely times where, um, where those things were, were, were not done and different convictions and different things. But, but honestly, I think it's... It's a really cool thing to be able to do that, and it's truly the incarnation is worth celebrating in and of itself. An incarnated Savior, you know, without an incarnated Savior, we, we really don't have any hope 
for salvation, and the world has no hope for redemption, this is definitely worth spending time to celebrate. And I love the announcement with the, oh, I forgot the new name. Still, still hymn night to me. Chris, what, I'm sorry? Cookies and Carols. Cookies and Carols. I have to, you know, old habits and all that. Uh, I'm excited. It's, it's fun to sing, and, and uh, it's fun to sit together and to sing these songs that we know have been sung for generations and to kind of be a part of those things. And one of those songs that, that comes to my mind first for this time of Advent is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And I was thinking about this song as, as I was prepping for, for tonight. And I just want to read two of the verses. I'll read the first verse here. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. And then verse seven. It says, O come, desire of nations, bind in one the heart or the hearts of all mankind. Bid thou our sad divisions cease and be thyself our king of peace. There's a lot of things that I love about this song, but just wanted to highlight that first verse, that seventh verse, this idea of Jesus coming really was for the redemption of Israel but it was also for the redemption of humankind in total, the redemption of the world, the redemption of the universe, the cosmos. And song just really highlights this anticipation of the advent, the anticipation that the world felt in that first coming of Jesus. And that's what we're going to really be concentrating on uh, tonight. So the title tonight is A Promised Preparation Reality. We're going to be looking at those three specific things as we sort of kick off this Advent series. So let's go ahead and we'll go to Genesis 3.15. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Genesis 3.15 Uh, it's, a, it's a really pivotal verse. This, this whole passage is really, it really sort of sets the tone for the rest of Scripture, for the rest of redemptive history, for the rest of human history. But looking at verse 15, this is uh, to give little context. This is directly after the fall. That's okay, I'm reading by tree light. This is directly after the fall uh, and the pronouncement of the curses. Um, And so this is God pronouncing the curses upon, I guess it's in the midst of that, but it's God pronouncing these curses of the fall. It's after the fall. And what God says, what he gives here is a sort of a curse and a promise at the same time. And God's, God's good at that. He, he will pronounce a judgment or a curse and normally you'll be able to find a promise 
that happens at the same time. Look at verse 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. So humans, men and women, mankind, had been given dominion over the earth, first in the garden. They were the imagers of God, but after their rebellion, they were cursed to die and live their life outside of that mountain paradise that they knew. And so that curse is pronounced there, there's gonna be enmity between Satan, the serpent, and the offspring of, of Eve. And that was going to be present, there was gonna be tension. But also there's a promise that one would come, would bruise, or that uh, his head would be bruised, but would crush, sorry, I read it backwards. Uh, he would bruise his head, but that this one that would come would crush the serpent, crush the head of the serpent. And this honestly is the first promise of Advent, that one is gonna come. So right there, before we really do anything else, before we even move really past the fall, we have this promise of the Advent, that one was going to come. And so this promise is of a, a savior champion that's going to conquer this enemy, that's gonna conquer sin, and as that promise is sort of unpacked and unfolded, we learn that through that advent, we are on our way to returning back to Eden, to a paradise. It's pretty neat to get that right in the outset, that promise of, of advent. Now that promise was made to Adam and Eve, to all offspring, it was for all peoples, for all humans for everyone, but as time moved on, it was clear that God, by giving that promise, expected that humans would sort of respond in an appropriate allegiance to him. Instead, more rebellion, increased rebellion from the nations, and so that promise was then revealed to come just through Israel, and there's this setup of the nations versus the nation. However, still in the promise, the nations are included. That there would be a hope for them to be redeemed as well. And as history progressed, more promises were made in light of that, more clarification on what was going to happen. And that expectation that God had would be that his own people would respond appropriately, that they would adhere to the standards that he had given, that they would be faithful to him. The world continued to get darker, further from the creator, and even the nation itself, this nation of promise, continued to rebel and continued to rebel against him. The creator had to judge this rebellion. He would judge his own people in order to lead them back. Still, that expectation is there. This promise was made. The expectation is that they would remember it, that they would follow him, that they would 
faithfully wait for this promise to be fulfilled. That, in a nutshell, is really a lot of the story of the Old Testament. During the time period that we're looking here, look at Isaiah chapter 9. This is kind of a tumultuous time in the history of the nation. Go ahead and turn to Isaiah 9, if you have your Bible. And Britain read a passage, I think, that is, that is famously used for, uh, for Advent for this time of year. I bet if you went to Hallmark or, let's be honest, most of us just go to that greeting card section of where we're at, probably. Which is probably Target, right? Am I right? Yeah, I won. Um, sorry, Hallmark. But if you go to the card section of Target, that's probably now the predominant place. I, I will bet you will find these verses on cards right now. Uh, these are famous words. You, you may have them somewhere in your house. Maybe they're on some other decorations. But some of these verses that are used here are used for, for Advent, specifically chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Let's read those real quick. For to us a son, uh, or sorry, I'm sorry, for us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of the peace, and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness for this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Different parts of that, different sections are probably used, and, and we have warm fuzzies around some of, these, some of these verses. And that's great, and that's wonderful, and it's wonderful for, for us to carry those into our own traditions. And truly, this is, and, and especially in light of knowing Christ, looking back, we can say, yeah, this is specifically talking about Jesus. This is a time, let, let, let's give a little context to this, though, uh, and maybe deepen our little understanding of, of this passage here, because I think, I think there can be some lessons for us to learn even right now from, from this passage um, in Isaiah 9 that has mo- mostly to do with what's happening around, around this, not just those verses. Because we can look at those verses and say, yes, we, we should hold on to those promises that one is coming. Um, but in Isaiah chapter 9, What's going on right here? There is a lot of unrest happening. The the nation is now split into two. You have the northern nation, the southern nation, and even between those two, there's not a great relationship. There's worry that the northern kingdom is going to align themselves with an enemy and attack the southern kingdom and this is supposed to be the, the chosen people of God. This is supposed to be the people who know and understand who he is. And even between them, there's, there's a, well, enmity comes to mind because we just read it. But that's exactly what it sounds like. You have different world powers. You have the Assyrians. You have Syria. You have, you have other area, smaller nations around them that are vying for position, trying to sort of survive this large empire that's starting to grow. 
There's a lot of really terrifying things happening. Let's go back to chapter 8. Isaiah's role as a prophet is to call the people of God to remember the promises, to remember the covenant, and to live as the covenant people of God who are aligned with him. That's the role of Isaiah. And so you look at verse eight, I'm sorry, chapter eight, verse one, and you see the sort of the larger context of this. Chapter eight, verse one says, then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters, so this was supposed to be written in a way that people could understand, it said, belonging to Meher Shalal Hashban. <clears throat> and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest, Zechariah the son of uh, um, uh, Jeberekiah, it's split in my thing, it's hard to read, and a test for me. So God is saying, I want you to write this down, this is important. I want you to get some witnesses. I want everyone to make sure that they know and understand that this is from me, and I want you to understand what's happening. But I want you to look at verse 3. This is Isaiah. He says, And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to me, Call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz, or, I'm sorry, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So I want to pause for a second. So I went back to the beginning of chapter 8. What is God using as a method for conveying his message? This isn't new. He's using the name of a child. He's done this several times. We could point to a few other places. But he's saying, this woman conceived and bore a son. Here's the message. And that message, it has, man, if you had, what if you had to write, what if that was your name? That would be, it's just not nice. I understand it's prophetic, but Meher Shalal Hashbaz as your name. That's a lot, Lord. Um, it says, but before that child knows how to cry, my father or my mother. This is something that God does as a timing thing to show when some of these things are going to take place. So before this child is this old, these things will take place. He doesn't tell you a year. He doesn't you know, tell you a specific you know, month or date or something like that. But he says, before this child does this thing. So you can kind of have an idea. So God is using this as a timetable. It's just interesting that he's using children. He does this also in Isaiah, in a different spot in Isaiah as well. Um, but what's interesting is they're, they're already starting to, to see that uh, they should look to these, uh, this child as a, as a timetable. That's at least what Isaiah is telling them. Look at verse 13, if you have your Bible open. Verse 13, this is what Isaiah tells the people. He says, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a 
a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken and they shall be snared. They shall be taken. The people at that time, they were in, they were in a worried state. There was darkness all around them. Then they come to find out that a, through this prophecy that Assyria is going to take over some of these other nations. This scary empire is going to get bigger. It's going to get scarier. And then God tells them that the inhabitants of both the northern empire, and the, I'm sorry, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom are both going to stumble. They're going to fall. They're going to be broken. This is not great news. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Um, but then he also gives them a promise. This is important. Don't, don't lose sight of this. We're, we're sort of building to something here. But look at verse 19. See, because there's a temptation at that point. There's a temptation to say, God, I want you to fix this. I want you to make it normal again. I don't want to have trouble with our enemies. I don't want to face hardship like lack of food, which is easy to have if you are going to be laid siege against. I don't want my children to grow up to see war and to see strife. Lord, fix all the things. Just make everything better again. And the Lord's honest. He says, it's not going to get better. In fact, it'll get bad. But he does make a promise. Verse 19, and when they say to you, oh, that's not the promise. Don't read that part. That's not the promise part. Verse 10 says, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. It's such a weird verse. But what it says is you can come together and you can make your plans. It won't work. You can speak your words and they, they won't stand. It says, for God is with us. All of the big problems don't have to get fixed for God to fulfill his promise to take care of us. So for those peoples, for the people that Isaiah was writing to, he can't just tell them, all of your momentary problems will be all taken care of. But what he can say is, there's a promise for a future fulfillment. Where we read in chapter 9, there's a promise that one will come who will be that. And so for right now, you need to prepare for him to come. You just need to be ready for when he arrives. 
And I think that's such an important thing for us to remember is that we can think that God is only faithful if we experience all blessings all the time. Blessing of peace around us, good relationship with our neighbors, good job, enough food, good education for our kids, whatever it is, whatever you put in that category, we can say, God is only good, God is only a blessing if he does these things. However, what God is saying is, is he's saying it's not gonna get good all around you. Everything else around you is not gonna get good, necessarily. And in fact, to them, he says, it's not going to. He says, but I'm for you. And what God ends up doing is he doesn't fix all the things around But what God does is he takes care of his own remnant. He takes care of his people, his individuals. He takes care of them. And yes, there can be a faithful God who faithfully cares for his people within tumultuous times and within bad situations. What I love about it is this is the reality of who God is. God doesn't lie and say, I'm going to make all things better. There are many outside of the church who think that Christianity is just trying to make people feel better all the time so they can just get through stuff. That's not really what we see here at all. Part of this is God telling them, it's not going to get better right now, but there's, I promise there's going to come one who's going to fix everything. The challenge to us, if we're to take that idea and to apply it to today, it is far too easy for us to think that if we have peace with our neighbors, plenty to eat, good education, all the things we talked about before that God is blessing us, that then therefore things are good. But what God is trying to allow them to see at that time of Isaiah. And what I pray we can learn from that is that what we need to do is to remember that what we are looking forward to is to Christ himself and not for momentary blessings that we get now. Does that make sense? Because right after this, we have this promise that Isaiah gives to them. And again, it's a child, just like we saw before in Isaiah 8. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And that right there, that's actually the first advent. That was their promise. The government then shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All those things that they longed for, all those things that they wanted, if they were expecting to have all their fulfillment right then, the temptation would be too great to be led astray to something else that was not Christ. Does that make sense? And here's the proof of it. If we go back to chapter 8 and look at verse 19, it says, and when you say, or when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp 
and mutter, should not the people inquire of their God? Should they not inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and the testimony, if they will not speak according to his word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. When they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuous against their king and their God and turn their faces upward and they will turn to the earth but behold distress and darkness, gloom and anguish and they will be thrust into the thick darkness. All that to say, when God says, hey, it's not gonna get any better but you need to trust me, there were a lot of people who said, let's go over here to the mediums. Let's go to the necromancers, which if you don't know what a necromancer is, don't, don't ask Siri in the car on the way home. But it's basically, let's, 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 go to the, let's go to the witches. Let's go to pagan practices because clearly God's not doing what he said he's gonna do. So let's, let's go over here. The temptation is great for someone to say, I'm gonna go somewhere else because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not getting this thing that I need. But the promise of Advent is that one is gonna come to actually take care of all of these problems. And so by them placing their faith in God to say, all right, God, I understand. Things are gonna get crazy around us. And so I'm gonna trust in you more. What ends up happening is there is then a focus on the promises of God rather than looking elsewhere to find fulfillment in those things. Does that make sense? It's so easy for us to think that if only we could achieve some of these things that God has promised now, that then somehow we've arrived, and yet we might not have Christ. We received a promise. We need to be prepared to walk with the Lord until that promise is fulfilled. They were to prepare themselves for the coming of this savior champion. And some did. Some truly did. Look at Luke chapter two, starting in verse 22. This is after Jesus is born. I wanna highlight something in this passage here, which talks to us about this preparation. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem. This is talking about Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus. It says, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as was written in the law of the Lord. Every male who who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. And look at this phrase here, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit, um, oh I'm sorry, Uh, and the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, or the Lord's Messiah. And he came came in the Spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to uh, to do 
for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation and you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary's mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for the sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul uh, also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. There was a man hundreds and hundreds of years after Isaiah who was ready. He waited. He waited, he looked, and the Lord revealed that he would see the Messiah, but he was prepared, and when he saw the Messiah, he responded appropriately. He saw that fulfillment. He saw the Christ come. He saw his arrival. And all of a sudden, all of those prophecies that had been made, all of the promises, all of the teachings, all of the hardships that Israel had gone through to lead up to that time and to that day, Simeon saw in that baby that he took up in his arms, he saw the reality of Advent. It was real. It wasn't something to make Israel feel happy when things were sad. There was actually someone who had come to fulfill those things. For generations, people who heard the promise and prepared their hearts lived in light of God's goodness, not because everything around them was perfect. It was terrible in a lot of times. A lot of those times passed. But they lived in light of that promise. They held on to that. Simeon was one of those who was this transitionary character who went from seeing and living in that darkness in the world and holding on to that promise to then seeing that promise fulfilled. He lived in that anticipation. And even though we are thousands of years removed from that first advent, I really do pray that we'd remember to celebrate with that same kind of emphasis on the promise of his coming that we'd prepare our hearts. I know that this is a time where we celebrate the first advent, but what I pray that we retain from that and pull from that and understand from that is that anticipation because we are also waiting for his second advent. And I pray for us that we would prepare our hearts to live in light of that, just like Simeon did, that we would not take a substitute for that promise, but instead wait for that fulfillment. That we wouldn't be distracted, that we wouldn't be drawn away, that we wouldn't look for some other fulfillment. We would wait for that advent. And I pray that we live with the same hopeful anticipation for his second coming. 
Father, Father, we are thankful for the promises that you have given. Lord, this time of, of Advent, the time where we celebrate the arrival, Lord, I pray that we would have in our hearts, Lord, the, the readiness, Lord, for you to do what you have promised. Lord, just as Simeon was ready and saw that fulfillment, Lord, I pray that we would anticipate, Lord, your presence in our families, in our lives. Lord, that we would perhaps provide that Advent moment for our neighbors, our families, where we bring Jesus, where his coming comes through our word, our testimony, us bringing Christ, Lord, with us. Lord, we pray that you would be made much of, that you would be the one anticipated during this season. And Lord, I pray we would learn these lessons that we would reapply them to our lives, not just during this time where we anticipate the celebration of First Advent, but that the lessons learned of the promises made, being prepared and hopeful for the reality of the fulfillment of the Advent, God, we would apply to our lives throughout the year in looking for your second coming. Lord, I pray we would make decisions based on this understanding. Lord, I pray that we would, Lord, teach our children, Lord, to be hopeful for what you will do, not just to care for us in this time of, of, of tumult, of, of darkness around us, God, but that we would be anticipating the great promise of your arrival. Lord, I pray that we would be marked with those people who look and are waiting and anticipating for you to fulfill all of your promises that you've made to us, Lord. Even if others call us a fool, we know that we stand. We stand in light of a righteous God who makes good promises and keeps his promises to his children. And Lord, I pray that we would have this heart of worship throughout this time period. Lord, before this end of the year, that we would, Lord, truly worship you in light of who you are and what you've done. Thank you, God. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.